Hello and welcome to SSCS Chip Chat. I'm your host Satya Mishra and today my guest is Dr. R. Jacob Baker. Dr. Baker is a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is active as a consultant and has been an expert witness in several important cases. He is well known in Analog's IC circles for his publications, patents and textbooks. He also runs cmosedu.com where anyone can get an education in circuit design. Dr. Baker is currently editor for the IEEE Solid-State Circuits magazine. This is a fun episode where we talk about nuclear testing, locating camouflaged explosives, and hunting pigs in the wilds of Texas. Dr. Baker, welcome to SSCS Chip Chat. Oh, thank you. So I always like to start the podcast with a bit of background about my guests. You, you said you grew up in Las Vegas? Um, I grew up part of the time in Las Vegas. Uh, I lived in Los Alamos, New Mexico, Hardin, Montana, um, and then Henderson, um, Nevada. So did you um, develop an interest in electronics right from your childhood, or how did you get introduced to it? Um, not a very exciting story. I wanted to make a good living, and so when I went to college, I thought electrical engineering would be a good way to make a living, um, a decent living. So that's what I studied. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Um, when I was thinking of college, I wanted to do astrophysics. Um, but everybody talked me out of it, saying there's no jobs in the astrophysics. You might as well go to electronics and actually get a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you went to college in... in um, you, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, but before that, you were in the Marine Corps? Um, so when I was a senior in high school, I wanted to go to college. I was the first one in my family to go, but had no money to pay for it. I took the, uh, it's called the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Test in 1981, and I did really well. Um, I went to the recruiters then and showed them my scores, and the Marines told me they'd give me E2, which is private first class. It's a step above the lowest rank, um, which meant a little more money, and I uh, <laughs> signed up um, and uh, went to signed up in uh, October of 81 and went through training, and then in September of 82, I transferred from active duty to the reserves so I could go to college. And then I saved my money that I made in the reserves to pay for college each semester. And I went to UNLV because that was the university in the town I lived. And I could live at home and eat at home and, you know, pay for everything. So not very uh, exciting, but uh, got, uh, I mean, it did what it needed to do. So that's a good reason to go to wherever you're going to yeah um so you said uh e2 uh, uh for people who don't know anything about the marine corps what does that mean any of the enlisted uh enlisted or um, non-officer ranks there across the navy marine corps army air force they're ranked by E1, E2, E3, E4, et cetera, up to E9. And then officers are O1, O2, O3, et cetera. Um, it just means that uh, um, instead of at the time, um, instead of each month of being in the reserves getting roughly $100 as a private, you get $120 as a private first class. 
and when you're poor, twenty dollars is a lot of money. So <laughs> looking back, it was, you know, the decisions were based upon finances, and I joined in a time after Vietnam and before the Persian Gulf for everything. So um, there was. Uh, uh, no desire to keep people. So when I went to boot camp, for example, uh, my platoon started with 95 people. We ended up with about 65 or so. Um, so they just cut people left and right that weren't going to make it. And, and a funny story or interesting story, one of my uh, drill instructors, three of them were Vietnam vets, um, and one of them was actually an Iranian hostage that uh, was... Uh, captured in the embassy in Iran and we were his first platoon after being released from uh, captivity. Oh wow. And there's some bit of history there. Yeah. Um so you you said you were the first one in your family to go to college? What yep. was what was that like? So did somebody did people follow you after that or um Yeah, yeah. Uh, my siblings went to uh my younger brother and younger sister both went to college. So, I mean, it was kind of a transition um, in the United States where uh, you, I mean, generally college was kind of not very common and, you know, the 60s or whatever kind of changed and more people went to college and um, nowadays it's very common. Um, not common enough, at least not where I live in Missouri. Um, oh, okay. I still find a lot of people who just don't want to go to college. Um, oh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's just harder to find a job without a college degree anymore. Yeah. Cool. So um, you did your bachelor's and master's at uh, UNLV. Um, mm -hmm. What was that like? Did you have fun or did you get into mischief and just studied oh. all the time? <laughs> Las Vegas. Well, to begin with, I didn't have any money, so <laughs> um, it wasn't too much mischief I could get into. So, um, no, I worked. I went to the Marines, and I I worked all four years when I was in high school. So when I went to college, I really needed to. That was one of the reasons I joined the service. I couldn't continue working 40 hours a week and going to school. I did jobs, everything from busboy to pantry cook to dishwasher. I worked at a dog track. I cut beef on a buffet line. I worked as a butcher. And I couldn't continue doing that work and going to school. So that's one of the reasons I joined the service. Um, and so my first three years of college, I was very focused and serious. And then in the summer between my junior and senior years, I got a job at the Nevada test site working in a tunnel um, where they were setting off the nuclear tests caught the bus at 4 a.m. in the morning and got home at 7 p.m. riding the bus out there to uh, work. Um, and then in the fall, I got a job at, uh, in town designing instrumentation. Um, and I worked there for like seven years until I decided to go back and get my Ph.D. The nuclear test site sounds interesting. So you would go inside a tunnel and set up a bomb and... Well, no. <laughs> when I was working there, I was an intern, and I did drafting. I mean, this was before computers. Okay. Oh, boy, it sounds old. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I would troubleshoot, like, mining equipment, like if the motors weren't uh, turning over or whatever. Um, so at that time, 
there was it was Reagan's time, Star Wars and the Strategic Defense Initiative, and so there was the discussion of using the nuclear power to power lasers uh, that were orbiting around the world and then shooting down inter uh, ICBMs, um, you know, if they were launched or whatever. And there was more, uh, there was no above ground nuclear testing. I think that stopped in the 60s or maybe even the late 50s, I don't recall. And so all the nuclear weapons tests were down or in a tunnel. And the reason they did it in a tunnel is you could have an alcove where you could put like structures or vehicles or experiments. And then after you set off the bomb, you go in and look at the results of the experiments. And when you had the bomb and, you know, underground a mile or whatever, you destroyed everything that was, uh, you know, looking at how the bomb was detonating. And so um, there were those two methods because you couldn't do above ground nuclear weapons testing at that time. I think I had heard uh, stories like that from my one of my former bosses, Alan Buckles, who used to be a colleague at uh, at this site, maybe, or was it somewhere else? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, I worked with Alan long time, seven years or so. He's a very capable fellow, <laughs> very good engineer. You had a good uh, good mentor there if you worked with him. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely, and he had very good. Um, stories to tell about you that you know you had all kinds of technical discussions uh, and both helped each other in learning all the electronics concepts yeah that was at that time I mean that job was such a good learning experience because we did everything from board design to um, you know designing protection circuits power supplies um, we did uh, hybrid integrated circuit design, um, you know, it's an exciting time. Um, and then, um, uh, when they had the nuclear moratorium in the nineties, early nineties, he, uh, finished his masters, if I recall, and then moved to do chip design, uh, maybe at national, I, I don't recall. And I returned, uh, I've been teaching at UNLV as an adjunct and I really liked it, So I returned. I was married and had two kids at the time, so um, the only school in Nevada um, that had a PhD in electrical engineering at the time was University of Nevada, Reno, so the family and I moved up there, and I finished my PhD and got a job at, uh, I worked at Lawrence Livermore, and then got a job at the University of Idaho in the fall of 93. Wow. Um, so you had a family while doing PhD. Did PhD pay enough to, you know? <laughs> uh, no, that my wife. Is an engineer too, and oh, okay. both of us had our uh, retirement through Fidelity for you know seven years, and so we lived on that. And then I was hired as a consultant uh, in '92, '93, and did some consulting uh, for EG&G, um, and then was lucky got a job at uh, University of Idaho, and uh, we lived in Livermore for a while, then we moved up there. Um, actually to Boise because it was for University of Idaho, but as uh, to do work in Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Um, I think the first time I uh, encountered your name was when you were a professor at Boise State and you had uh, the cmosedu.com website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually watched some of your lectures to learn some of the stuff. Oh, um, good. 
How how did you get started on uh, on that endeavor? So um, it's a long story. I'll try to be quick. Um, <laughs> Micron is a big semiconductor manufacturer, and in the early '90s, they really wanted engineering in Boise. At the time, Boise State didn't have an engineering program, um, and so they cooperated with the University of Idaho to start an engineering program in Boise so people that were working at Micron could go get bachelor's, master's, and PhD while they live in Boise and work at Micron. Um, uh, in 2000 or so, I moved over. Boise State started their own electrical engineering program, and in 2000, I moved into that program, and I was department chair of 2004 to 2007, and I also taught on, at that time in the early to mid 2000 the cable uh, channels had their own public access sites, and so we had their own site. And I used to teach in the evenings on that night a significant enrollment because people at Micron could listen or take classes and not have to drive over to Boise State and deal with the parking and all that. And uh, that went on for like four years or so until they decided to stop. But the students really loved being able to record the videos um, and so I, did, I looked into um, trying to do that on my own so I could continue taking the classes remotely without, you know, keep in mind, if you're working in semiconductors, you might be doing 12-hour shifts at a time. And so going to school just may not be possible unless it's videoed. So I started doing the, uh, my own recordings with, in about 2007, 2008. Um, I don't even know when I started posting them sometime in that range. About 10 years ago or so and uh, then I posted them online and I just I didn't put any permissions or whatever and then literally people from all over the the world started watching them and uh, you know I get emails from especially when the semiconductor companies were moving into other regions India is a great example and they were starting design centers I go to India I just want to tell you how much your videos have impacted me. I was able to pass interviews and get a job because I studied your online materials. Um, and that was all good. The problem with doing all that was and putting all that material there was that you're like a beacon of questions. Everybody has questions. <laughs> emails, And it's like, you don't want to be rude, but I mean, you just have to be realistic about being able to answer all those. Well, you, you can answer like a thousand emails a day. <laughs> LinkedIn, I was getting that, and I'm like, yo, I don't know how to <laughs> how to handle this. And so, just did the best I can. And so uh, nowadays, though, um, but I don't get as many, nearly as many. I was getting probably ten a day before, and now I get maybe one every week or so. Um, so things have settled down, but of course, the the growth of electronics is kind of stabilized as well. So. Yeah, Micron is an interesting story. Like, uh, it's out there in Boise that didn't, you know, there was not a much of a semiconductor industry out there apart from Micron, as I understand. Yep. Um, so that got started. Uh, well, there was HP. They did disk drives, and that's a story by itself. And there is, um, there was AMI Semiconductor, which had a fab and a significant design facility in Pocatello. Which now is on semiconductor, and there are there was also Zilog. Zilog had good fabs going um, in Nampa, which is uh, right outside of Boise, 
Um, and so Micron wasn't alone, but um, Micron's an interesting story. Just really briefly, it was started by twin brothers, Ward and Joe Parkinson. Um, and they got funding from Micron in the late 70s from J.R. Simplot, who is a funny story or was a billionaire from potatoes. And uh, uh, he funded the first fab. Um, and I think they started producing in like 80, 81. Um, and both Ward and Joe were from Blackfoot and they wanted to live in Idaho and they had some roots, uh, uh, they have family here. And so that's why they started Micron in uh, Boise. They initially started it as a design center. Um, then J.R. Uh, Simplot decided that he could fund the fab, which just to put things in perspective, funding the fab back then is tens of millions where funding a fab nowadays, I can only imagine would be billions. And so it's a more reasonable uh, risk, and he, he certainly made a good investment um, uh, in that uh, funding that fab. And so um, I worked at University of Idaho, and it was small enough, and I started working in 94 at Micron um, part-time and cooperating, and that's how I learned all the semiconductor stuff. And they had production there, so I was involved with everything from packaging to Memory to new products, CMOS imagers, field emitting displays, RFID tags, all this stuff. So it's uh, really another lucky uh, set of experiences for me um, to get, you know, a really wide background in experience and exposure. Then also Micron is very supportive. Uh, I started doing designs. They worked and they basically said you can work on whatever you want. So they let me just come in and do designs on whatever is new. So I worked on calcogenite or phase change memories, flash chips, CMOS imagers, as I've mentioned, et cetera. Did the Micron employees that uh, used to come to your class, um, how was the interaction with them? Or... It, was, it was great. I mean, um, they were appreciative to have uh, someone there that was providing skills they could go from being a technician to an engineer and answer the questions because you have to keep in mind microns in the business of was in and is still in the business of making money just like all of these semiconductor companies and so they've got to hire the best person for the job and if you're coming from boise state and you're uncompetitive with somebody from a more traditional university they're going to hire the person from the more traditional university but the people that went through our programs um, especially because of my interaction with the micro engineers and knowing exactly what they were looking for, their ability to pass the interviews was outstanding. And so, I don't know, at one time I had probably 400 plus students working as engineers at Micron. I don't know how many I are still there because I've been gone about six years now. Wow. Um, so uh, it, was, it was a really great experience. I was there up in Boise almost 20 years. Uh, teaching electrical engineering and working with the companies and all that. Yeah, that's pretty good impact. I mean, 400 engineers that got a job because they got taught. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, from Boise State, you moved to move back home uh, into Las Vegas. 
Yeah, my kids uh, are grown, or I shouldn't call them kids anymore. <laughs> well, they're still my kids. They're still kids. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's actually a professor uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder. Oh, wow. Her background's also electrical engineering. She does building systems. So she's in the civil architecture and building systems uh, department there at CU Boulder. Hmm. Um, my son is uh, a concert bassoonist. He's not an engineer. <laughs> it's the uh, Charleston, South Carolina um, Symphony Orchestra. So he uh, is a professional musician. So uh, the point there was they're grown, and um, I travel often doing consulting. And Boise is a little bit more challenging to travel from, especially the amount of traveling I do, um, than Las Vegas. Las Vegas is really um, – It's a good uh, hub. Yeah, it's a great place to travel from, and also it's an inexpensive state. There's no state income tax, and although the uh, summers are hot as hell, the rest of the time is pretty decent, dry climate, sunny, 300 days a year, um, and so I was lucky and got a position back here at UNLV, and things have been going well. Yeah, I remember one time I was in Las Vegas, and I think it was in July for a conference, and it was... 125 it was <laughs> i i couldn't wait to get back into the hotel <laughs> yeah you got to go from one air conditioned place to another but you know that that heat's necessary because with the cost of living if it wasn't that hot in the summer <laughs> the population just mushroom more than it already is <laughs> <laughs> it still did mushroom before the you know housing crash back yeah. in 2008 yep, yep. right yeah well now it's doing well again i mean they're uh, housing prices are climbing, and yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, you do a lot of consulting. So is that a big part of your thing now, apart from your teaching and research? Um, yeah, it's a big part. I do expert witness work, and then I do technical consulting. Um, you know, I keep in what's going on. Before, when I was working in Micron, I was always like, they would ask me, hey, we got we're acquiring this new company. Can you go down and check it out? And so I would learn what's going on with the technology that way. Um, now my consulting is more uh, in defense-related uh, areas uh, where there's a unique niche. And my I do some commercial, uh, I mean, I used to be exclusively just commercial products and commercial-related products, consumer products. But now my technical stuff is more defense-related, and my uh, expert witness stuff is generally more commercial-related. So expert witnesses, it's basically during litigation, is that what it is? Yeah, they want you to, they want you to write a report and look at patents or look at trade secrets or things along that nature. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a whole other business. I do that on the side part-time, and... Um, you know, it keeps you busy. Yeah, I bet it does. Uh, do you come across, I, there's a lot of um, work on patents these days. Do you get to work on like uh, proving or disproving patents or things like that? Yep, looking at all that stuff. <laughs> and then also I've got patents of my own that I, um, I haven't really been doing much on that lately, but I used to help with uh, prosecuting those patents, but not so much in the last several years. Yeah, I think I saw your list of patents. It was like 
fifty-ish, if I remember. Well, Let's I don't know. <laughs> you have to be careful with patents because once <laughs> you uh, file patents, they can do what are called continuations, oh. where you're not involved. And so, if they have other ideas that um, you know that can be patented, they'll do a continuation or a continuation in part. And so, it shoots up the numbers of patents that you have. All right. Um, any uh, tricks about, you know, how how to go about patenting things for somebody who's um, just starting out? Uh, I think if you have a really good idea, you can go to uh, USPTO.gov, I think is the best website, and do a search and look and see if anybody's patented anything along those lines. Um, you know, look at... Uh, um, you know what the ideas are. Um, it's you know the unfortunately there's a big disconnect between having a great idea and actually making money from it. Um, so this is a whole area that we could spend hours talking about. Um, I recently had an idea for a you know patent that was related to texting, mm -hmm. like and there probably maybe is something like this already where I wanted to get somebody a. Uh, a number to text me, but I didn't really want them to know my phone number. And so I was thinking it would be nice if there was like a way you could give them a number and an app that they could text you, but they wouldn't get your actual phone number. But then I thought to myself, ah, somebody's probably already thought of that app, you know? And so it's a way to communicate without uh, any exchange of personal information. So that may be something that you, you, you could look and if it wasn't a patented idea, you could patent it, but then how do I make money off that? I would either have to try to make a business on that, which, you know, uh, that's a lot of effort right by itself, or I would try to wait till somebody does, hey, you're infringing my patent, which I frankly don't want to spend time on at this point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Um, so besides the consulting, uh, I'm uh, you're doing some research at the University of Nevada, I think. Um, yep. What are you What are you working on now? Lots of uh, lidar, light, uh, you know, ranging and detection, um, detection and ranging stuff for applications in the military, detecting explosives, uh, objects, distance, etc. We developed a technique to uh, basically take a signal that's nanoseconds in duration instead of using a high-speed digitizer to digitize it take a snapshot of it using a uh, tap delay line and then read it out in the microsecond range or three orders of magnitude slower so that you can use a microcontroller to do um, you know to do the signal processing on what the wave returned waveform looks like and so okay. in my lab I what's think that? I, I, I was saying that um, there's a lot of technical stuff here that we might want to explain a little bit more. Um, what's a what's a lidar? That's a instrument where you send out a pulse of light and then you look at the reflection back. It's similar to radar, except instead of using, you know, electromagnetic ray, you know, radio waves, you use uh, electromagnetic light waves. So you're just looking at the reflection, and you can tell things by what's reflected back. Hmm. Uh, so uh, LIDARs are finding a lot of use right now in autonomous vehicles. 
Yeah. So are are your lidars targeted to as autonomous vehicles or mostly for military? Um, the stuff I'm doing is higher speed. I think for autonomous vehicles, everything's relatively slow. Um, uh, you know, one application might be if there were explosives underneath uh, a net of camouflage, you know, how do you detect if they're there? Um, another would be um, detecting a target at a distance. So um, all of my applications, because I'm funded by uh you know, the military or military related, but I mean, it's not saying there couldn't be yeah. applications in autonomous vehicles. I'm trying to picture how LIDAR would work for detecting explosives under the camouflage. I mean, it's opaque, right? So it's like data. Well, no, the camouflage is, um, is uh, generally uh, a webbed netting so that the light uh, and air go through. It's not not a solid sheet. Okay. You don't do that a lot of times because the wind can catch it. Yeah. Make it sail and blow it away. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so explosives would reflect differently compared to the background. Yeah, that's what I'm told. <laughs> that's not my <laughs> area. Yeah. Okay. Uh, makes sense. Um, and there was something about a um, tap delay line. Um, oh. So that's used in this? How, how, yeah. Yeah. So like uh, roughly a foot in free space is the time it takes a light wave to travel one nanosecond, something in that ballpark. Um, if you look at the reflected signal that's occurring in nanosecond regime, let's just say 20 nanoseconds for 20 feet. It's a simple example. If you were to take uh, switches and close the switches, leave them open to look at the return signal, and then close the switches every one nanosecond, you would get samples spaced one nanosecond apart of the return signal. Then you could read those samples out much, much slower, and it would tell you what the return signal is. Now, light's traveling fast, but, you know, if you're sending a projectile or a plane's flying, that's traveling, you know, way, 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 way slower and so relatively speaking, you know, you have lots and lots of time to process what you uh, get reflected back. Okay, so, so the tap delay line, you're, you're, you're receiving the signal and you have some kind of um, delay mechanism and you, yep. and you tap it every nanosecond delay and then figure yeah, out where, where it was, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, we are able to build those. And I mean, we can go from 100 picoseconds up to 10 nanoseconds on the delay. It's just a simple, um, you know, you can adjust the delay element really easy. Right. Um, and that allows you to do a course. Uh, you look coarsely for where things are occurring and then to zoom in on the microcontroller can tell the circuit where to zoom in and then take a picture and get really good resolution. Um, and so, and then also you don't need, you don't need really fancy technology. We fabricated lots of these circuits in really old technology, half micron and 0.35 micron CMOS. Yeah. It's a half micron, 0.35, that, those are technologies from, let's see, 25 years ago or 30 years ago, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah 25 years, I would say. Yeah. Early nineties. Okay. Um, so those are, um, those are fairly inexpensive today. 
yeah, yeah. And because yep. the state of the art is now what seven nanometers, I think Intel is talking about bringing out chips in seven nanometer. Uh, yeah, that's just not reasonable for a university to try to fab that. Not even the cost. You just all the design rules and all the other stuff, the hoops you have to jump through. It's just not practical. Ten million dollars and a hundred people to put out a chip, right? <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> Apart from research, you're you're taking PhD students. I've got uh, four PhD students right now and a bunch of masters and a bunch of undergrads. Um, yeah, I mean, constantly graduating students, <laughs> they keep leaving me. <laughs> uh, so when you're looking through, um, when somebody, uh, a student applies to you, what do you look mm -hmm. for uh, before you say, I, you, know, you're, you might be a good fit in my group? Um, I'm a little different, I'd say, than most professors in that I try to hire from within UNLV. So if they're outside, I generally won't take them just because I've had so many experiences where the level of, I mean, they want to do a good job, but their education, especially in circuits, is just not at the level where they can even remotely contribute in a reasonable time. And so I, I tell them if they want to do well and get into my group, um, they need to take one of my classes and show me they've got the aptitude for the work ethic and all that. I, I don't, I won't, I mean, in most cases, unless there's some special recommendation from someone I know, I won't take students from outside, uh, you know, the university just simply because not that all the PhD students I have don't come from other universities. They generally do, but I just don't accept them cold and start funding them unless I've got some experience with them. So if, if somebody wants to work under you, best to get a master's or bachelor's at, uh, at UNLV? Well, or, I mean, if you could get a, a department-funded assistantship. Okay. I mean, UNLV has lots of those. And then uh, go uh, take one of my classes, and then on the second semester, I'm like, wow, this student's great. I really need someone right now. I'll ask them if they'll work with me. And sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they just say, no, circuit's not my thing. I don't want to work in circuits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And that brings me to uh, another point. So if somebody is starting out in electronics or circuits, maybe undergraduate or maybe early in their career, what advice would you give them to get as good as they can? Um. I think that having a hobby of electronics is really useful, like soldering and, and you know, doing some printed circuit boards and building some things that you're interested in, everything from maybe you might do a simple alarm to something that, uh, you know, flashes LEDs or something and think about how things work, um, you know, uh, that's a good thing. I mean, and also I think you need to be self-motivated. I mean, it's one thing, oh, I have this hobby, I want to do this, but then, well, I want to do it, but I need help from everybody. I mean, that's, you need to really figure things out on your own. Um, and I mean, that's true even at my level. I try to figure it out before I ask for help um, when I don't understand something. It really has to be like, I've really, really, really tried to understand. Um, and so there's that concern. I think also simulating um, LT Spice is a great uh, simulator that you can download for free, and there's lots of examples and things to look at. Um, 
you know, YouTube is also a good reference. And then you also have to like it. I mean, you have to be mathematically and science oriented. I mean, if you say, I want to make a good living, but you hate math and you hate science, I don't really think it's reasonable for you to go into engineering. I don't think that's, I mean, that's not right. You need to yeah. focus on what you like, you know, and hopefully if you're lucky, it's what you like is what you can make a living at. So you're consulting, you're doing research, you're, uh, you're graduating PhD students. Do you have any time for fun? Yeah, I like to go hunting and fishing and my wife loves to go traveling. So we do a couple of real vacations every year, someplace around the world. And, um, and I enjoy working. I really like, I love working with the students. I love uh, interacting with the people I interact with, doing consulting and talking about different things. Um, yeah, so um, it's all good. <laughs> so hunting is kind of uh, an unusual hobby for an engineer, I think. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, when I was in high school, I used to go uh, different times. I'd put my shotgun in my trunk of my car and my decoys and me and my friends would go out duck hunting after school and um, sometimes before and then I'd go work my job and so I'd, I've been doing it since I was a kid. Um, wow. Lately, um, I've been doing, uh, uh, so I really like to go bird hunting, um, but lately I've been doing uh, wild hog or pig hunting um, down in Texas and I really enjoy that. Um, not just because I enjoy the eating aspect, but also because the population of the wild pigs is getting out of control, so it's not hard to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't realize there was a population of wild pigs in Texas. And Oh, yeah, they're rolling like crazy. That's what? why there's no season, and you can hunt them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Oh. Um, they're really... Uh, they're really uh, you know, the farmers are not happy because they'll have crops and the you know, group of pigs will thunder in and just destroy everything. And they also um, have some other uh, aspects that are really devastating the wildlife. That's just <laughs> a bit of that. <laughs> wow. Um, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, unusual. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dr. Baker, thank you so much for being with us. It's been yeah, a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, nice talking to you. Did you like this podcast? Please leave us a review on iTunes so others can find out about it. Did you not like something? Please drop me an email. Also, if you'd like someone to be on the show, or if you have anything to say at all, send me an email. My email address is chipchat at fastmail.com. Again, it's chipchat at fastmail.com. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Solid State Circuit Society. Please check out sscs.ieee.org to become a member.